G'day, I'm Martin Niles, and this is The Truth of It, ACL's weekly newscast on politics and current events where we cut through the fake news and we bring you the truth of it. And on today's program, we deal with the Aged Care Royal Commission, the even darker underbelly to the abortion industry, and LGBT conversion therapy. But before we go any further, I want to ask you a favour. If you're watching this on Facebook, there is actually only one way to make sure that you never miss another video from us ever again. Please click on the link above to go to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button. It'd be really helpful if you could. Not only will you never miss a video, but you will also see a huge range of content that we have there in our video library already. Right, let's dig in. The first topic for today is the Aged Care Royal Commission. One of the first things that Scott Morrison did when he became Prime Minister was announce a Royal Commission into the aged care sector. And just last week, they released their interim report and it is tragically titled, it is only one word, it is simply called neglect. I'm going to read you from the foreword. It says, as a nation, Australia has drifted into an ageist mindset. Aged care services are floundering. They are fragmented, unsupported and underfunded. With some admirable exceptions, they are poorly managed. All too often, they are unsafe and seemingly uncaring. This must change. The system lacks transparency in communication, reporting and accountability. It is not built around the people it is supposed to help and support, but around funding mechanisms, processes and procedures. This too must change. We're left to conclude that a sector-wide focus on the need to increase funding, a culture of apathy around uh, care essentials and a lack of curiosity about the potential of aged care to provide restorative and loving care, all of which is underpinned by an ageist mindset, has enabled the aged care system to hide from the spotlight. This must also change. Left isolated and powerless in this hidden from view system are older people and their families. This is not a life. This is not my home. Don't let this happen to anyone else. Left in her own faeces and still no one came. Mum doesn't feel safe. This cruel and harmful system must be changed. We owe it to our parents, our grandparents, our partners, our friends. We owe it to strangers. We owe it to future generations. Older people deserve so much more. We've been told about people who have walked into an aged care residence, frail, but in relatively good spirits and mentally alert, only to die a few months later after suffering from falls. The system is unkind and uncaring towards them. In too many instances, it simply neglects them. Serious pressure injuries are significant. Pain and distress are common. We've seen images of people with maggots feeding in open sores and have seen video and photographic evidence of outright abuse. These accounts of unkindness and neglect have been difficult to tell and difficult to hear. That's the foreword of a Royal Commission interim report. You don't usually see that degree of passion. Here are some things, some key findings that I pulled out of the report just a few headline dot points. It found that between a quarter and a half of all aged care residents are malnourished. It found that pressure injuries occurring, are occurring in one third of the most frail aged care residents at the end of their lives. There were 4,013 notifications of suspected physical or sexual assaults in aged care in 2017. That's 11 every single day. In aged care facilities, 61% of residents are regularly taking psychotropic agents, 41% antidepressants, 22% antipsychotics, and 22% benzodiazepines. And a recent study found that only 10% of psychotropic medications were justified. There is widespread overprescribing, often without clear consent, of drugs which sedate residents, rendering them drowsy and unresponsive to visiting family. And palliative care for residents who are dying is patchy and fragmented. Inadequate prevention and management of wounds leads to septicemia and death. There is poor continence management. I could go on. The report itself says, 
It is shameful that such a list can be produced in 21st century Australia. At the heart of these problems lies the fundamental fact that our aged care system essentially depersonalizes older people. A routine thoughtless act, the cup of coffee placed too far from the hand of a person with limited movement so they cannot drink it. The call buzzer from someone left unanswered, the meal left uneaten with no effort to help, when repeated day after day becomes unkindness and often cruelty. This is how care becomes neglect. Do you know something? It's very interesting to me to note that the Aged Care Royal Commission received less than half, I repeat, less than half the media coverage of the Banking Royal Commission. Makes me ask the question, what is it that concerns us? Is it our money or is it the elderly? Deuteronomy 27.16 is very strong. It says, cursed be anyone who dishonours his father and his mother and all the people shall say amen. That idea of honouring your father and mother, your forebears, those who go before you, is one of the Ten Commandments. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Meanwhile, we ask ourselves, well, what's really going on? Well, we've read a whole bunch of it, haven't we? But there's more. I mean, the first thing that's going on in the face of all of this is time and energy spent on political correctness. I happen to know some people who are in the aged care sector, and I can tell you what's been dragging them down in recent months, what it is that's been consuming masses of their time, that they've had to dedicate heaps of staff to, that they've had to put so much energy and meetings and resources behind. It is mandatory LGBT inclusion policies. Waffle about all of this stuff that they've got to draft and write up and get stamped, and there's bureaucrats who are policing it uh, uh, ruthlessly, and it's government mandated. Meanwhile, elderly men and women are lying in their own feces with maggots in their pressure sores. And that's what the, what's, what's concerning the bureaucrats. Second thing that's going on is euthanasia right around the country. Victoria's legalized it, and now other states are going after it as well. Oh, another option. Now the elderly can just kill themselves. People who are depressed, alone, forsaken by family, and already feel like a burden. The report itself says that the language of public discourse is not respectful towards older people. Rather, it is about burden, encumbrance, obligation, and whether taxpayers can afford to pay for the dependence of older people. Research done in the US state of Oregon, where they have euthanasia and have had for some years, found that more than half the people who underwent euthanasia cited as a reason for undergoing euthanasia the fact that they felt like a burden to family and friends. What could possibly go wrong with the legalization of euthanasia? so much. But you know, when we come to talking about how to solve this, rather than make it worse, but how to solve it, there is actually a glaring problem. The problem is this, the government can't make people care. It's a very Australian thing to look to the government to solve everything. But you know, it is possible that we risk in many of those moments asking the government for too much. I mean, the government can do some things but they're limited. First thing they can do is throw money at the problem. They always do that. The interim report is already saying, put money into this, add more money, dollars, cash. Well, I tell you what, Australia's GDP is through the roof for a population of our size. We have more money than just about anyone to put behind our various services and so on. Money isn't solving it. Yes, more money might help some things, but that's only one aspect. The other one is more rules. More rules and requirements and, 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 and paperwork that, that demand external conformity, but don't need any internal change. 
oh yes, give them the coffee three times a day or whatever. Doesn't mean they won't put it too far from their hands so they can't drink it as we read before. Oh yes, make sure that this is done and that is done. Process, procedures, box ticking. The aged care industry is already suffocating under mountains and mountains and mountains of regulation, of bureaucracy, of paperwork, of compliance and of laws. It's insane. Half their business or more is taken up with this kind of stuff. It hasn't worked yet. Yes, there might be better models. Yes, there might be better ways. But the real fundamental solution, the bigger solution, lies outside of government control. The bigger solution is a word that is known in the Bible as agape, which is translated into English as love. And Jesus told us what it is to love our neighbour when he talked about the Good Samaritan. He told us about a man who found in the course of his life somebody who needed help. And he could have left that help to others. There appeared to be others around. He could have found it very inconvenient for him to offer that help, as if he's not the right person to do it. He knew it would be costly to him in terms of not just finances, but actually in terms of his time and sacrifice and energy. And it was uncomfortable to provide that help because this person who needed help was radically different to him. And yet he did it. And he did it at cost to himself. He knelt down in the dirt, he exerted his strength, he got dirty, he went right out of his way. He spent some of his own money, he cared, he loved. In other words, he did something for someone else, sacrificially, out of a motive to see them blessed. The government can't love people. It can take money from one person and throw it at someone or something else and say, here's some money. Money that didn't cost it anything to get. Money that it can just write checks for and nobody feels the pain in terms of the government establishment. What it can do is uh, it, can, it can make more rules. It can, it, can, it can make sure people externally conform to process and procedure, but it cannot love. It takes person-to-person -person contact to perform agape, sacrificially to love another. It's a good Samaritan and a Jew that love each other. It's two people to love and to care. The government can change some things, but the deeper problem is us. And the reality is a Royal Commission interim report like this tells us about a sick society, not so much about a sick government. It's people that are the problem. And I've convicted myself preparing this topic because I confess it's been a little while since I visited a widow or went out of my way to spend time with the elderly. And that is not good. That is not good, especially in light of what James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I wonder, I wonder whether we feel that personally, whether we take the obligations of our faith seriously, the obligations of love, agape, the Good Samaritan, I also wonder something else. I speak to a lot of parents and the great and intense burden on their mind is enrolling their children in school. And that's as it should be. 
They should be concerned about that because so many schools are politically correct. So many schools are anti-Christian. So many schools are environments which are toxic to faith, which will not have a good impact on your kids, which you wouldn't want your kids to go to if you're truly concerned about them and especially about their spiritual welfare. So parents look long and hard. Parents take painstaking steps to get their child into that maybe one or two schools in their area that, are, that, that they think are better than others. Uh, but you know, sometimes they go even further. They say, well, good schools like that are so rare and we can't find one or the one that's in our area is out of our capacity to afford it. And they take another step and they say, well, we're gonna make a sacrifice. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna actually take on the teaching of our kids ourselves and we're gonna homeschool. And sometimes they themselves take on the responsibility for that. Now, there's no right answer to that question. It depends on your circumstances. But I see it done so often out of a, a, a really fervent concern and compassion for their kids. And I just want to ask this. I want to check. I hope it's true already, and it might be, but I hope it is. I hope we feel exactly the same way about our parents going into care. Because sometimes, sometimes the government isn't the only place and sometimes it isn't even the right place at all, but sometimes it's just not the only place that can solve our problems. So I hope that concern is felt by all of us because the answer to this issue is not just the government. It is you and it's me and it's our capacity to fulfill the commands of Christ on our lives. I'm going to turn now to um, the issue of the abortion industry and its darker underbelly, if that were at all possible. This is a story that the media are simply not covering. Let me tell you, did you know that for $350, you can get the intact liver of an aborted baby? For $750, you can get the intact brain of an aborted baby. Add $195 for packaging and handling, and it's yours harvested at the local abortion facility. What am I talking about? Well, in 2016, the Center for Medical Progress launched an undercover investigation to expose the widespread illegal harvesting and sale of aborted baby body parts, from livers to brains to still beating hearts to entire heads intact as they are. This is the shadowy world of biotech companies, researchers, abortionists, and salespeople. And America discovered just how real it was when the heroes of our story, David Delayden, Sandra Merritt, Troy Newman, Alban Rongberg, and Geraldo, Geraldo Lopez released a series of 12 videos to prove it. And in these videos, they posed as buyers from one of many biotech companies, and they met with Planned Parenthood executives. Planned Parenthood is like the Mari Stopes of the United States. They're the largest abortion provider in the country. They're responsible for hundreds and hundreds of thousands every year with clinics right across the country. They met with executives from the then president, Deborah Nicotella, to individual clinic operators. Um, and the videos that they produced, the conversations that they had, those undercover deals that they brokered are absolutely horrific. 
Those videos, 12 in total, they speak about procuring intact baby body parts, how abortion procedures are modified to ensure that those parts can be obtained in one piece, how that the parts need to be from late-term babies, including the need for hearts that are still beating, so they must be harvested live, for the need for what they call intact specimens, whole fetuses in one piece, in other words, undamaged. And the implication, of course, is that these children are killed in ways that cause maximum pain and trauma, or they are in fact born alive and then killed. And then their little bodies are sold whole or piece by piece for money to biotech companies. At one point, an executive featured in the videos laughs mid-conversation while she's having a glass of wine. She laughs at a proposed deal and its value, declaring, well, I want to buy a Lamborghini. What the uh, videos exposed is a horror of, I was trying to think of a word, I'm going to say satanic proportions. It's absolutely vile. And this underworld is normal, it is widespread, it is accepted within the abortion industry, and many people are getting rich off of the blood of children. But get this, and this is the story. This is what I've told you is from 2016. The story today is this. Despite the expose of this illegal activity, Planned Parenthood has not been prosecuted. Biotech companies have not been prosecuted. They are trading in human tissue. It's unlawful. But a legal response has been mounted. And it's this. The good guys are facing criminal trial in California as I speak. Delayden, Merritt, Newman, Romberg and Lopez are being prosecuted by the Californian Attorney General for fraud, breach of contract, unlawful recording of conversations, civil conspiracy and violation of the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupted Organisations Act. This is the first time that such charges of unlawfully recording conversations have ever been made in the state of California. It's a law that's never been invoked until now. The Center for Medical Progress is arguing the obvious, that this was an undercover journalism project aimed at exposing illegal trafficking in human organs and tissues. That should be sufficient for the law not to apply according to the statute in question. But the case is being heard in San Francisco, which is the state's most liberal court, surprise, surprise, and the judge is William Oreck, and he is acting swiftly to prevent evidence which might incriminate Planned Parenthood from being heard by the jury. Judge Oreck is known to have connections to Planned Parenthood, including his position on the board of a charity that houses a Planned Parenthood clinic. He has imposed what he has called Oreck rules to the trial process, which do not accord with the court rules, such as preventing witnesses from speaking to their lawyers at all for the entire time that they're under oath. He's excluded evidence about tissue and organ harvesting and has prevented evidence being tabled about Planned Parenthood altering its abortion procedures to enhance the quality of tissue specimens. The trial has just entered the phase where Planned Parenthood and the biotech companies are to be cross-examined. And just a few hours ago, after the first day, I think it's the first day, it's certainly the early stages of that cross-examination, David Delayden himself tweeted that the CEO and procure, procurement manager of a biotech company called ABR swore under oath that they, one, receive intact fetuses from abortions for organ harvesting, two, discuss pricing of fetal tissue at the National Abortion Federation, which is the National Association of Abortionists, and three, are partnered with Planned Parenthood. 
Now the case is ongoing, and I'm going to provide you with updates of this horrible business in future episodes. Um, but before I end that, I want to draw something attention to something really important. Notice who is going down for this horrific expose. It's not the people who are selling human body parts who are altering their practices to conform with what seems to be totally illegal in the abortion industry for the sake of selling those bodies and making more money off of them. No, no, it's not the darker underbelly of the abortion industry that's brought it undone. These 12 or so videos did not destroy it. In fact, there's been very little that's happened to them in the legal space. No, instead, actually, it's the people who exposed these deeds done in darkness to the light of day. It's the people who brought the American, the attention of America to what was really going on. It's the people who did an investigative journalist expose, which was so important. And I've been saying for a long time that if you want to get to the core of what it is that's going on in the West, what is happening in terms of our cultural changes right now, in terms of where this culture is headed, you need to understand Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, which says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What's going on in the West is that we're not any longer just making mistakes about what's best and what's most right. In the past, the West has made many mistakes about that stuff. But in the past, the West has been largely shaped by Christian principles and ethics and Judeo-Christian, you know, and have had a lot of Christians in institutions trying to do the right thing. Lots of mistakes made. I'm not pretending that there wasn't, but it's not a mistake anymore. What's happening here is a deliberate push, a deliberate push to reverse the moral compass, to say that which is wicked is in fact good, and that which is good is in fact wicked. And there can be no clearer example of that than in cases just like this one. Look at what one group has done. Look at what the other group has done. These people are mass killers and they're selling the baby body parts so they can buy Lamborghinis and have a good life. There is a trade in fully formed aborted fetuses. There are whole heads getting sold. There are still beating hearts sold to biotech companies right now as we speak. This is a real stock and trade in human flesh. No, it's not them going down. No, no, no. The people who are being prosecuted by the government for criminal activity are the ones who exposed it. The ones who did a good thing are being punished as though they've done evil. And the ones who did a bad thing are being let off with it. And of course, that's the direct opposite of what governing authorities are called to do uh, in the Bible. Government exists, why? And you can read Romans 13, you can read 1 Peter 2, you can look at all sorts of different places. Why do they exist? To punish the wrongdoer and reward the one who does good. It says it time and again, which is summed up nicely in many other places like Proverbs 14 and in Revelation, we're talking about Jesus' rule in his kingdom as righteousness. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. That's the government's call and we're seeing that reversed. And you know, once you catch that, that basic fact, you will understand a great deal about where the West is currently headed. And we pray that that will be abated and stopped. And it could be. It requires a change of hearts and minds. But you know that verse in Isaiah 520, it doesn't just say calling good evil and evil good. I, I believe it, it's a progression. And that next statement, putting darkness for light and light for darkness, that's a progression. Darkness is more a prevailing condition. It's not just a single act of good or evil, as we read first, but darkness is that prevailing condition which starts to, starts to characterise a society when it has started to get good and evil mixed up. 
there is a paradigm that arises. There is a reality that dawns, which is that you can only describe the conditions as dark. And I think that again, this case shows us how great is that darkness once that darkness starts to prevail. So we must continue to stand for what is right and what is morally good and true in the public square, because that is the ministry to which the authorities are called. And I will update you on this particular case as it moves forward and we pray for a good outcome. I'm going to turn now to the issue of conversion therapy, LGBT conversion therapy. Let me read you to start with some scriptures from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You might think this strange, but no, I'll make it clear why I'm doing that in just a moment. But starting at verse 9, it says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'll skip a few verses. It says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, if you had to guess, how long do you suppose it would be before a sermon on those scriptures is in fact illegal in this country? You might think that's a crazy and alarmist question because after all, we live in Australia. But maybe not so crazy. Last week, the nation's health ministers met together and they discussed this issue that has come to be known as LGBT conversion therapy and how to ban it. Victoria and the ACT agreed to lead the way and since then, Andrew Barr, the chief minister of the ACT, has announced that his government will ban conversion therapies. It'll be a broad definition and, you know, we're particularly concerned about religious, uh, dubious religious contexts in which this kind of thing is happening. Meanwhile, Victoria, who's already made that announcement, has come out and renewed their commitment. There's a government discussion paper that's out. They're saying, we're going to do it. We just want to take submissions now on how we should do it. And so Victoria and the ACT are leading with conversations occurring right across the nation. Now, many will say to that, well, we've got nothing to fear. Conversion therapy is an awful thing. Nobody supports that. That's rubbish. To which I say this, a very simple question. What is conversion therapy? It's not our term. We didn't invent it. It didn't come from any church. It didn't come from any religion. It was not invented by us, it was invented for us by someone else with an activist mindset and it makes absolutely no sense because conversion and therapy are two radically different things. What's a conversion? Well, a conversion is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's the change that God brings upon a life from death to life, from darkness to light, from sin to to, to salvation, from self to Christ. It's that radical change that comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life from outside of myself, from God. That's conversion. What's therapy? Something completely different. Therapy is, um, well, it's medical treatment administered by other people. It's not a theological term. It's not intelligible in any Christian worldview to have these two things smashed together. It's their term and therefore they have defined it. And their definition is very important 
to understand. In fact, it's very shocking. The Victorian government's discussion paper refers to, for example, any practice that seeks to change, suppress or eliminate an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, including efforts to reduce or eliminate sexual and or romantic attractions or feelings toward individuals of the same gender, or efforts to change gender expressions. That includes self-help, religious practices, counselling, prayer, wait for it, fasting, scripture reading, it includes encouragements or teachings around abstinence and celibacy. It includes pastoral care. A report by the Human Rights Law Centre and La Trobe University, which has been heavily relied on by the Victorian government, includes themes like this in, in, in understanding what conversion therapy is. Feeling guilt or shame. Or of church teachings that homosexual practice is sinful. And of teachings that encourage people not to act on their same-sex attraction. And this applies to gender expressions, not just sexual orientation. So it's not just gay conversion therapy, it's also transgender conversion therapy. So it becomes conversion therapy to encourage somebody to live their biological sex. And think for a minute how that might play out in relation to children. You think, for example, well, uh, a child goes to, Harry goes to school and it's a government school and safe schools is mandated along with various other programs and instructors that may come in from groups like Minus 18 and that. And, they, and I quote from one of the resources, they say, well, you know, kids, gender is like a galaxy. You know, you can explore it, uh, but you can never fully discover it. Uh, you know, you should experiment. You should go out there and, and, and be who you really are. And, you know, a child is at this early developmental stage. Um, maybe Harry um, has some things going on in his head that are confusing him and, and he feels like, well, maybe this is me. Maybe I'm really a girl. And he might go to the school counsellor or he might then go to his dad or he might go to his dad first or however that starts to play out in that orbit of people who get involved. All of a sudden, if Harry becomes convinced, and it may be with, with, with uh, help from an ideologically biased counselling expert who comes through the school or a teacher or someone or a doctor, and meanwhile, you've got dad or mum sitting there saying, well, I think actually Harry should keep the dress off for a while. I think maybe Harry's actually best served by being a boy, even though you're starting to think that definitely this is a candidate for gender affirmation to become a girl. Who do you think's doing the, um, the converting? You might think, well, surely it's, the, it's not the dad. Surely the dad's affirming because he's saying Harry should still be a boy. He should live according to his biological sex. Well, actually, it's the people who are putting it into, it is the dad, and it's the people who are putting it into the child's head to think differently, who are doing the right thing according to these laws. The discussion papers explicitly say that it is not conversion therapy to affirm someone in their transgender identity or affirm someone in their same-sex attraction. It is only conversion therapy to affirm someone in their biological sex or to affirm someone in their heterosexual attraction or to avert someone from taking the scalpel in their hand or taking hormones or puberty blockers or indeed to tell someone that the best thing to do is to live a celibate life or to, or, or, or to, to wait and see where things pan out in their journey of faith. No, that's all conversion therapy and those ideologues who seek to change children the other way to become more queer, they themselves are affirming according to this worldview. Do you know what most concerning 
are the repeated calls to attack the ideology behind conversion therapy. Such ideologies are named pretty openly as Christian beliefs, such as, and this is actually quoted in one of the reports, love the sinner, hate the sin, or accept but don't affirm, and the teaching that homosexual practice is sinful, and the teaching that abstinence outside of Christian marriage is right and good. The reports are clearly anti-Christian. They hone in on Christian beliefs and communities. One report says, for example, uh, this is the um, this is the Latrobe University report that 10% of same-sex attracted Australians are vulnerable to harmful conversion practices. Why? Simply because they uh, report same-sex attraction and they practice a religion with traditional teachings on sexuality and gender. Oh no, they're vulnerable to harm. That's not good. That's a terrible situation for them to be, despite the fact that they're there voluntarily. I mean, this is the other aspect of this crazy worldview. What it's saying is, it doesn't matter who you are, if you go to a church and if you sit under that preaching and if you actually believe that the best thing for you is that, you know, you, you don't act on same-sex desire, and if you actually think that the best thing for you is, is you don't like being same-sex attracted, well, no, I'm sorry, they're there. The state knows best. The state knows best. What we're going to tell you is, in fact, no, the way you're feeling is wrong. We've never met you. We don't know you from a bar of soap. We don't know anything about your worldview. We don't know anything about the way you feel about things. We don't know. No, but we know. Actually, what we're going to do is tell you that you should be affirmed in same-sex attraction. You should be affirmed in transgender identity. And you're not even allowed to seek help if you want it. You're not even allowed to go to those churches and hear that stuff if you want it. This is the madness, the absolute madness of this stuff. And the reality is that the whole idea of LGBT conversion therapy is nothing but a dog whistle. We know, right, it's, it plays into that sense out there that, oh yes, well of course, Christians don't like gay people and they're very, very nasty to gay people. And of course, conversion therapy, you know, average Joe thinks, oh, electric shocks, boot camps, well, they've probably seen that movie Boy Erased, for example, and they've probably heard about this nasty stuff. And well, of course, churches must be doing that. But churches are not doing that. There's none of that going on in this country right now. There's no coercion, there's no boot camps, there's no institutions built around those sorts of things, there's no electric shock therapy, there's, I mean, the only reports I've found in Australia of that kind of thing uh, go back decades and decades, and they weren't even done by religious groups, they were done by the government. But anyway, that's not happening today. But of course, that dog whistle is enough to get support for these laws, or at least to give people uh, reluctance to oppose them, or to make people a bit scared to oppose them. And that's it, that's all they need. Because then they get to ban a whole lot more. They get to ban mainstream Christian teachings, they get to ban basic pastoral support, and they get to ban even, yes, people who would like to seek that out. I was interviewed by 60 Minutes on this topic a little while ago, and at the start of the interview, I was asked, what is LGBT conversion therapy? And this didn't go to air, this part, but I said, well, that's just the thing, right? You know, some people think, well, it means uh, electric shocks, it means boot camps, it means coercion. I said, well, if that's all it meant, then nobody's going to stand up against that. Of course it should be banned. But here's the thing, those things aren't going on in our community today. The only thing going on in our community today is preaching of the Bible, is prayer, is people who want to live celibate lives, and is people who volunteer, voluntarily go and uh, get in groups with others who experience the same things and talk it out and, and try and help themselves. That's all that's going on. And see, the real problem here, the real thing these activists are trying to target is not that bad stuff. No, no. They are trying to target Christian theology 
doctrine and communities themselves. And of course, we went on through the interview and about an hour later, I said, well, isn't it interesting? I said that at the start of the interview and it was denied. I said, here we are an hour later and all we've talked about for an hour is Christian doctrine. So that's really the issue. And of course, that's exactly what you'll find in so many of these reports. That's all they talk about. And that really is their issue. It was actually said at the end of that 60 Minutes report itself, a guy called John Smid, a guy who did run this nasty form of gay conversion therapy decades ago in the US, in Tennessee. And look, it was wrong-headed then, it's wrong-headed now. This guy is not representative of what Christians believe, but he's since come out as gay himself and he's, he's sort of repented of his ways and he's now a, you know, a gay per, a Christian, I think. Uh, and he has said that banning conversion therapy on this program is not enough, he says, but there has to be a change to Christianity itself. And that is the true goal here. But you know, there isn't a specific anti-gay agenda in Christian teaching. I remember sitting with a, um, uh, an activist, an LGBT activist, and we were chatting about this stuff. It's obviously an ideological opponent, someone who's actually in the political sphere and, and, and fighting this out politically. And they said to me, that, we talked about the issue of LGBT people going to church. And they said, well, you shouldn't even bother, you know, pretending to welcome LGBT people. I said, why not? Uh, and they said, well, because nobody wants to walk into a building and find out that there's something catastrophically wrong with them. To which I replied, well, there is. And I let a silence sit for a minute when everybody felt very awkward. And then I said, there's something catastrophically wrong with us all. There's something catastrophically wrong with me. There's something catastrophically wrong with each and every human being by reason of their hearts being infiltrated by sin, by reason of them carrying the guilt of that sin and needing to be freed, by reason of them requiring salvation in somebody else. And the only answer is Jesus Christ. I believe that there's something catastrophically wrong with me. That's why I'm a Christian. And that's not an anti-gay message. That's an anti-everyone message, if you want to put it that way. That is a message that puts all people on a level playing field. As the Apostle Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, he says. But also, he says, there's no condemnation for whom? For those that are in Christ Jesus. That's the hope. That's the salvation. And I've always thought, if you don't believe the condemnation, if you don't believe the salvation, why are you so worried about the condemnation? Why is it an issue? That's another story. But here's the thing. The message of Christianity is a message of conversion for all people. It's a message of peace with God for all people because all people need it and every single person needs the power of God for salvation to all who, are, who believe. And the obvious outcome of all of this is going to be one thing only and it is that that basic message of the Christian gospel of conversion to Christ from sin to salvation, from death to life, from darkness to light, that story of conversion to Jesus Christ and new life within which, yes, changes us, yes, reforms us, changes even our desires, yes, it's true, that message is going to be compromised and elements of that message will be banned, even criminalised, and elements of that message will be kept from people, especially in the LGBT community, who need it. I had dinner a while back with a group of people who would have once, who did once identify themselves as being part of the LGBT community, uh, former homosexuals, former transgender, and they said, and these people are people who have been converted, 
No, not by therapy. Converted to Christ. That's the teaching. That's the Christian way. And they have, and they've come out of that lifestyle. And they said to me, you must keep speaking about this. You must keep telling the truth about this. You must keep holding high the hope and you must keep exposing the realities of this darkness because there are people like us whose very lives are at stake. And there's people like us who are real that uh, many in the media and whatever don't even want to acknowledge. But we have found conversion, salvation in Jesus Christ. And you know, they're going to try and ban that. And that's really what's going on here. But really, it's actually above their jurisdiction. Many a tin pot dictator and proud politician has tried to ban aspects of the gospel, the scriptures. But God sits in the heavens and he laughs. That's Psalm chapter 2, as people rage against all that he's decreed. And I would say this, Mr. Andrews and Mr. Barr, they can try. But God will build his church. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And their efforts to keep LGBT Australians out of the church and to hide the message of salvation from a group of people who need it will come to nothing because they, because you, Mr. Andrews and Mr. Barr, are picking a battle with Almighty God and I think I already know who's going to win. That is the truth of it.